0: know why I'm so passionate about music to code by because it works I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding there's only one problem they can't get enough well not only are we up to track 13 but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price the collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago still only a little more than 4 bucks a track but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks that's only 3 bucks a track yeah that's more like it 325 minutes of pure bliss go get it now at collection.musictocodebuy.net
1: .NET Rocks, episode 1332, with guest Paul Stovall. Recorded Friday, July 15th, 2016.
0: And welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And we're here for another hour for your .NET geekiness and pleasure. Hey, um, I've I got to tell you, man, we rocked yeah. SailFest here, my band. Uh, free- I saw some pictures on Facebook. looked like you guys were having a good time. We had a great time. This is f- You see, we have this local festival around the 4th of July called SailFest with tall ships and food and bands and stuff. And the people that run it are, you know, hardcore New Londoners, and they like to feature a local band right at the fireworks, right down at the pier. And The Reducers is a band that's from New London that was very, very famous in the 80s, and they held that coveted spot. And so, I always wanted that spot. I coveted it myself. (laughs) (laughs) 40,000 people walking around while we were playing. Wow. And a big audience and played right up to the fireworks. The best part, Richard, was the last eight songs of the first set right before the fireworks were all originals and everybody dug them. Nice. Everybody
1: was dancing. The songs and- I would know. You must have done New London Blues.
0: Oh, the New London Blues is the last one right before the fireworks. No, beautiful. No Time to Live, She Won, Groover Get Out of the Way, Waiting for the Summer to Come, all those and uh and I even called out at one point, Hey, you like our stuff? And everyone, went, Yeah Oh man. I thought I was a rock star because I do this show. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun.
1: That's yeah, awesome, dude.
0: All right, let's get right into Better No Framework. Cool. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, somebody you might have heard of, Paul Stobel. Never he heard of him. Never heard of him? No idea. He, uh, told me about this great site, and he'll tell us a little bit about it when he comes back on, but it's basically called Icanhas.net. Nice. <laughs> it could have had a can- cheeseburger, but I got .net instead. Icanhas.net, nice. right? icanhas.dot.net So the, only, the whole idea is that they're trying to port Octopus Deploy to the .net core, and like most of us, had a few headaches, and yeah. so this is the whole thing where you want to just be able to go somewhere and say, can I port my application to .NET Core, take a look at it and tell me if I can do it or not and save me the headache of finding out, you know, after I'm a couple hours deep into it. So that's what it is. You upload your package files or scan a GitHub repository, uh, upload your config, uh, prop packages config, project JSON and... Package dependencies files for analysis, and they build a visualization of the packages and whether .NET standard versions are available on NuGet
1: org. Wow, that's cool. Very cool. Very logical Very cool. thing too, right? It's like you, it takes time to look through this .NET Core doesn't have everything. What do you need? Yep, it's just a great community we have, and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I remember so, you doing uh, something it, like this in the Silverlight days. Remember when you were matching up you know features from WPF that were implemented in Silverlight and not.
0: Yeah, actually, it was Windows 8, actually. Right. It
1: was the very first WinRT,
0: and we wanted to see, you know, which uh, namespaces were changed and what was available, what wasn't available, and I started a, a wiki for that, yeah. 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 It's good stuff. That's awesome. And I know how much work it takes, so we're going to, we'll talk to Paul about
1: that in a minute. But first, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1002, which is back from July of 2014. We talked to Paul about Octopus Deploy. And uh, lots of good comments on this show. It's always an interesting gauge of a show is how much conversation went on like that. Uh, And this comment comes from Jared McGuire from two years ago now, where he says, I have been beating the continuous integration deployment drum for a long time. And it astounds me just how resistant some individuals and companies are to this workflow. While many individuals will agree that this is great, actually getting buy-in is another story. Making people change is hard. It has been my experience that most companies think that they are special and that it won't work for them because they have such unique needs. I have even had to say to some people flat out, you are not special. This will work for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You are not a special flower. You are just building software. Let's build it easier. Not a snowflake. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> i totally agree jared i'm glad you're out there banging the drum and telling people the truth and i'd like to give you a .Net rocks to encourage you to do more so a dotnet rocks mug is on its way to you and if you'd like a Donnet rocks mug write a comment on the website at dotnet com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to google plus and facebook and if you comment there and we read it on the show we'll send you a mug
0: and definitely follow us on twitter he's at rich campbell i'm at carl franklin and uh send us a tweet. We trim our eyebrows with them. Weird. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, let's bring on Paul Stovall again. He is the founder of Octopus Deploy, an automated development tool for .NET developers. Paul started Octopus in 2011 as an attempt to help himself and other developers to more reliably and easily deploy software to production. Since then, Octopus has grown up and now helps over 2,000 customers around the world to automate their deployments. Welcome back, Paul.
2: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: So, we're not talking about Octopus Deploy?
2: <laughs> no, the the show I pitched for this was uh, around multi-tenancy. Oh, okay. um So, yeah. So, for the past sort of four or five months, we've been working on some multi-tenant features in Octopus. and And that's kind of a separate thing. But in doing that, we had to do a lot of research and learn about multi-tenancy mm-hmm. uh, and what customers were doing with it. So I went in with these preconceived ideas. Uh, for example, I always thought that, you know, when I'd worked on multi-tenant applications, that the application itself would be aware of the fact that there are multiple tenants.
0: Right. Maybe, maybe we
2: should... Yeah, so let's
0: it, define that.
2: Yeah, so so it, let's, let's take an example. So imagine that um, here in Australia um we have power companies and, and maybe it's the same in north america but every quarter uh someone from the power company comes around to your house and looks at the meter box do they still do it that way over there
1: yeah i believe they do although i haven't seen one in a long time yeah they put a fancy meters in their electronic <laughs> read so they don't have to go actually up to them anymore but they uh they still gather uh, that data
2: so that's not very common here in Australia currently. It's still done manually, mm-hmm. um, and it's a very dangerous profession, right? Because Australia is a, a dangerous place. You know, you could open the meter box and it could be full of spiders. That it will kill you. Snakes on the way. <laughs> <laughs> there could be drop bears. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so it's a it's a dangerous <laughs> profession. And so, imagine that you're a company and you're building smart meter technology, and you're a startup and you 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 design smart meters and you create a website with an API where the internet of things is recording these meter readings. And you develop this application, you go, you have a salesperson and you go and you find a utility company to start using your software. Right. And, you know, imagine you've got a, there's a database and it's full of meter readings and there's a a web application, maybe an Azure website or running an IIS. Um, And you, you go along for a year and you keep tweaking the product as, as you get feedback from your customer, try and make it better. And then at some point, uh, your salesperson manages to convince another utility sure. to subscribe and start using software. And now you've got a problem, right? Because you're going from, from one uh, company, you're providing services to one, what we would call one tenant, mm-hmm. to two. Right. And... You know, on the face of it, it seems pretty obvious how you would support that. But as you kind of drill into the details, there's a lot of trade-offs uh, that you can make along the way.
1: Now, are we are talking about each customer wants a different version of the app, or each customer wants an app that looks like it's their app?
0: Or is it also, well, is, it's also sometimes just in the database, right? Yeah, let's let's
2: start with the database. So, you know, there's one way to do it, which is that you might have one great big database, and you put all of the tenants inside that database. So you have a, a table full of tenants and the table that has your meter readings has a tenant ID right. column, you know, that you set for each of the meter readings. Um, and that would probably be uh, an obvious solution if multi-tenancy was something you were building in from the start, but there's some downsides to that. So for example, imagine that you've got a half a dozen tenants all sharing one database and everything's humming along and then... Three months later, one of the tenants comes to you and says, you know what? We made a big mistake. Can you roll back the database for us? Right. And what do you do? Be, because you'll be rolling back.
1: Everybody's data.
2: You know, effectively restoring it back up for everybody. Yep. That's right.
1: Well, Scaling's I just think, you know, you have, a, you have a big customer and a bunch of little customers. and And this big customer is forcing you to buy, you know, bigger and bigger databases for everybody effectively.
2: Exactly, it's going to be hard to tell who's utilizing the database more, like who's putting more demand. Right. Um and then and exactly, so when you're talking about scaling databases, you're kind of talking about either scaling them up or what we would typically do is uh shard them out, so have lots of small databases and yeah. figure out some way to segment mm-hmm. the data. So the tenant is a pretty natural way to shard that data. And so actually having a separate database per
1: customer can make a lot of sense. Sure. And then it's easy to go across multiple machines too, at least by a tenant level.
2: That's right, exactly. Um, and so so that's the database side of it. And and as you kind of drill into it, it seems like there's actually reasons to go with one design or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, the application server is another level. So you know when a customer Goes to your when when one of the tenants goes to your website uh, and they make a request, you need to figure out at some point which of those databases to connect to. So, um, you know, depending on maybe the URL that you give them or how they're logged in, you might dynamically change the connection string of of your uh, ORM to go to the right database. But there's a few different ways to do that as well. So, for example, you could have um, a single IS website, you know, logically maybe running over a few machines, but logically there's one site and it's able to access all the databases. Um, The other way to do it is you could have a separate website, a separate IS application for each of those tenants.
1: Right. I get this feeling you might end up with both too, right? Like if you've got a, as soon as I get a customer to a certain size, having their own database their own app servers, like all that makes sense. But it's too expensive to do it for every customer, especially if they're little. Like, you kind of want to have a shared environment and then be able to shard off the bigger customers.
2: Yeah, there's always going to be someone who puts a little bit too much load on the system. Yeah. But even then, if if they're all, you know, if all of those smaller customers, let's say, are sharing one IS application mm-hmm. and it's, you know, dynamic trying to figure out which database to connect to, figuring out which of those customers is using the most resources, like, you know, Imagine that your uh, application pool is consuming a, a ton of memory. Trying to figure out which customer is responsible for that could be really hard. So having separate application pools, separate IS websites, again, would, e- even if they're on the same machine, so you're getting that utilization of the hardware, um, gives you a bit of control as to being able to see which customer is, is doing what. And then, of course, if you all have,
1: the Perfmon data out of a given one of those isolated web apps is going to be because of that customer. So right away, you've got a nice level of granularity.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Processes are a really nice way to uh, be able to segment each of these tenants. Mm-hmm. It, whether the processes are on separate machines or on the same machine, you'll be able to get a lot of information as to you know how that process is doing. And, and it's easy to tell exactly which customer
1: that involves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know who's impacting you. I I mean, I guess you also want to be able to figure out billing on that level too.
2: Yep, yep. If you're billing for resource utilization.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: right. Now, so if you've got, if you've got, if you go down this path then of separate uh, IS websites and application pools, it simplifies the application design a lot. Mm -hmm. So instead of having to dynamically figure out which database to connect to, which can also introduce a few problems. You know, if you imagine. Uh, if you're trying to cache any of that information, you might end up caching something for a customer who rarely logs in, polluting the cache for the customers who log in more frequently. Right. Uh, Whereas application pools, again, are a nice way to sort of constrain that. But when you deploy that app, um, you could then easily just say, you know, this is the application pool and this is the website for um, this utility that we're serving. And then over here is the one for a different utility. And the connection string can just be, in the config file, it doesn't have to be dynamically selected.
1: Yeah. And that's a
0: heck of a lot simpler. It seems like the more stuff that's shared and the more places where you have to, you know, check if this, than that there, the, the more possibilities you have for cross contamination. So it's nice to see, you know, these more fundamental level, uh, barriers, right? I mean, the database is a good one, obviously, but, uh, um, you know, the the sort of the lower level, the, um, whatchamacallit, the separation is, the less I have to worry about it up in the app layer.
2: That, that's right. And going back to that story about, you know, evolving from one customer to two, to go to that second customer, you can pretty much just take a copy of the application, a copy of the database, and just deploy it a second time. Sure. And that's that's adding your second tenant, re-architecting your app to dynamically, you know, query every table by tenant ID, or... um to be able to dynamically choose which database it's going to connect to, depending on which of those two options you go down, that's a lot of work to do. And so what happens is people kind of evolve into just deploying the same app multiple times for each of these customers. And I'd always seen that as not really the ideal path to go down. It's kind of, it's the way many people end up doing it, um, but it didn't seem like it was the ideal way. But... So, as part of, you know, for Octopus Deploy, we deploy software. And so, we have uh, projects that we deploy and environments that we deploy them into. It's sort of Mm -hmm. two-dimensional. And our our biggest feature request was being able to support customers who are deploying something not just to production, but to production for hundreds or thousands of individual customers. So, Hmm. each customer having their own website and their own database. And this was the most popular feature suggestion that we had on user voice. And I'd always seen it as this is not kind of the right way to architect. We're trying to solve it by what's really a, an architectural problem of your app. But as we, because it kind of floated to the top of our user voice, we did this survey, we talked to a lot of customers and we found actually there's, there's really legitimate reasons that you'd wanna go down this, this approach to your architecture.
1: And what are those reasons?
2: So the, the trade-offs between, you know, having everything in one database versus, uh, right. you know, a tenant ID column is part of it.
1: You don't want to re-architect the database. And, and why should you, right? Like, that just seems like a ticking time bomb, right? Some customers are going to be unhappy or that way. Customers affecting each other. Like, the database separation to me makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, that's right. At some point, one of those customers might say, we want to move on-premises right. some of this data. And so you're going to have to tease everything out. Um Scaling again is, is a problem that mm-hmm. you might have down the track if, if everyone is in one database. Um, data sovereignty can be a problem too. Like you might eventually uh, sign up a customer who's not located in the same place where you store everybody else's data. Right. And so at some point you will have to face this problem of customers need their data stored in different places.
1: On the other hand, if you get to enough customers, does it really make sense to keep having separate databases all the time?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. So, if you know, if you're building, uh, we, we use uh, the accounting software Zero um, right. at Octopus, and um, you know, they have thousands, probably millions, of customers by now, all small businesses managing millions of separate databases. Probably, I, I don't know how they're architected, but I would imagine that having all of those in separate databases is probably really challenging. Although having them all in the same database is probably also quite
1: challenging. Sure. I I would argue worse in some respects. It's just at what point does a database for every customer become unmanageable?
2: Yeah. So, you know, if you've got thousands and thousands of tenants, um, I would imagine that having a a big database may be more tempting just because you'll be able to... uh, more easily manage a single database than you would multiple even if you do sort of run into some other scaling problems down the track but i think with all of these topics it it's really going to depend on you know how the data is used you know if if the customers are coming to Mm -hmm. you and saying look i'm a european utility i'm not storing my data outside of europe well you kind of don't have a choice you are not going to have one database anymore
1: yeah, it seems like these problems are addressed by the modern cloud, right? Like, why wouldn't I just make a separate database for every customer when I know I can combine them on one machine in different VMs and can locate them, move them around, sort of freely if I'm using a big public cloud service?
2: Yeah, if your if your databases are all on, say, SQL Azure, um, it kind of doesn't matter too much whether it's a single SQL Azure database. Or multiple.
0: But it could. Um, I mean, I have we have multiple databases for multiple shows. And if I want to implement a feature, let's say in the admin that talks to all of them, you know, I have to, you know, add a store proc to four databases, for example. Yep.
2: Yeah, reporting across all of those databases is going to be a problem. Yeah. In a lot of these applications, in like business to business scenarios, it's not that often that you'd be combining You know, you, you internally might need to combine information from different customers and, and aggregate it up, but those customers don't care too much about that. And so taking those, that load off of those individual customer databases probably still makes a lot of sense. You know, you don't want to be.
1: And the more I talk, the more we talk about this, the more I come to this conclusion of I want separate instances for every customer. Like isolation by customer seems like a, a no brainer now.
2: Would you, would you apply that to IS applications though? Does it make sense to have a single IS app or a single uh, Azure web app that is serving multiple tenants or would you simply deploy a new Azure web app for each tenant as they sign up?
1: Well, I mean, and, that, and this is a good path to go down. It's just sort of—I I kind of feel like I want separate app pools so I can do diagnostics, know what customers affecting another. I want to be able to shuffle them around. Like my my gut reaction is to say yes, but I'd want them to be Azure websites anyway. I wouldn't want them to be IIS instances on my own VMs. Yep, yep. Now you have the sort of update
0: nightmare scenario if you if you really want to roll out features across all of your customers. Uh You know you'd have different versions of databases, different versions of of this and that. I mean, I can definitely see where there's a value to having a single a single place to put all that stuff.
2: yeah deploying one web app is a lot easier than deploying a thousand of them uh, One of the things we found as we did this survey and we talked to customers who were asking for this multi tenant functionality is that pretty much all of the answers had an even distribution. So we would ask this question like, you know, when when you have a new version of your app, do all of the customers get it at once or do just some of them and then some of them get it a bit later? Or do the customers get to choose? You know, do they get to do a bit of testing and decide, yep, this new version is good for me. Uh, I'm going to choose it. And again, you know, depending on the kind of business you're running, if you, if it's a cloud based accounting system, people probably don't care and they're always going to get the latest version. If I don't know that I'd ask
1: them, I'd just push it out. I mean, that's sort of the cloud way. Mm-hmm.
2: Right, exactly. But if this is a utility that's paying you millions and millions of dollars a year for the software, they're probably going to be pretty upset if you go and change use the user interface or something like that in the middle of you know, their training program. Right. So they might want to choose when they get those updates.
1: Well, which is, again, if you've got a thousand field workers and they're all going to need to be rechanged if you alter a UI or that's, it's a lot of money, you know, it's not a big customer being unreasonable. It's a lot of money for them to retrain those people.
2: Yeah, exactly. So they, so again, you kind of have this problem of not just rolling out a single app, but rolling out many, many copies of that application and the version that you're rolling out may change depending on which customer it
1: is. Right. Because I think you could build automation around running, rolling the same app across many instances. But as soon as I'm going to manage multiple instances, this gets a whole lot hairier hmm. or multiple versions.
2: This is, this is
1: the problem that we've been uh, faced with trying to
2: solve in the last five months. And so we have a beta version that's that's out now and people can play with it. And we've tried to sort of model in Octopus. You go in and you say, I want to create a tenant. And I want to deploy this version of the app to this tenant. And the tenant might have might live on a separate machine to the others. Uh, it might have different settings right, and, and so on. But one of the things that really struck me in doing this survey is I thought we would say, you know, does every customer get the same version of the app? Or do they all get to choose which version? Or do they just kind of do you roll out like to VIP customers first? Or do you have like early adopters? And I thought that the answers to all of those would all be really heavily On one side right you know and then a handful of people might do something crazy but none of the questions that we asked ended up like that it was all this kind of like 50 50 split between the options that people were doing oh no another example is customers so we asked this question like do you do you just have a separate production environment for each customer or do they have their own test environments And I thought that would be really clear. Everyone would just have production and a handful of crazy people would have test environments. But it turns out that actually a lot of people are doing deployments where they're deploying a separate copy of the app for testing so the customer can test it before they get the next version.
1: Interesting. So they have a beta site that people could go to and still access the customer data and just try the new version?
2: Yeah, to access, you know, their data, a view of, of how the app would look for them so right. they can test it out. Now, and then you ask the question, well, why would they want to test something that you've been testing? You know, presumably you've been testing it yourself before it goes to production. Right. And that kind of gets into the next topic, which is how do you handle customizations? Mm-hmm. Because if someone's paying you, you know, if they're paying 30 bucks a month, Uh, for some for some software that you're providing they probably don't get a whole lot of say about what functionality it has Mm -hmm. but if they're paying you a lot of money they're going to expect that you will add you know features for them so if they're an australian utility they they want to be able to report drop bear attack incidents right and and that's a custom thing that just that customer i'm
1: sorry can we clarify what the heck a drop bear is
2: (laughs) oh they're they're um it's it's something that uh Catches tourists out all the time. You know, you hear about kangaroos and wallabies uh, in North America before yep. you come to Australia, but um, no, drop bears are responsible for a lot of deaths of, of tourists over here. So. Right.
1: This is the the carnivorous koala bear.
2: That's right. They they hide in trees and tourists. They are, drop
1: on you. Know, ya. They, there yeah, you go. Got to look up. You know the the American equivalent is the jackalope. The
2: <laughs> Jackalope. <laughs> Yep. And the Northwestern tree octopus.
1: Yes, the tree (laughs) octopus is a great one.
0: (laughs) Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is.
1: Uh, It must be that happy time again.
0: Time for us to ask that age-old question. I can has have octopus burgers. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's true. (laughs) No, probably not. Tree octopus burgers, actually. Here you go. No, No, it's
1: actually... What? No, yeah. The Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus Burger. Okay.
0: (laughs) You know, there's been bears in Connecticut. No. Black black bears. Yeah. As a matter of fact, my friend Andy uh, has seen bear scat in Mystic, Connecticut, where I grew up. Home of Mystic Pizza. Yep. And a relatively urban environment, really. So, that's interesting. Yeah, in the woods. He's seen it. I've seen him. I've seen him. All right, well, anyway, it's time for us to give away a complete collection of Music to Code By to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code By is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet, and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a new state of flow and keep you there. Net Rocks fans are still being more productive with Music to Code by. See what all this fuss has been about. Check it out at music to code by.net. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Joshua Hartzell. Congratulations, yeah. Joshua. Golf clap for you, sir. A round of applause with the clappers for you, Joshua. And Joshua just won the whole 13 track collection. That's a lot of minutes, actually. I'm not sure I need to do any more of music to code by. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. and every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And now it's your turn, Paul. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy?
2: Anything with a Ubiquiti logo. Ubiquiti?
0: So, uh, Say what?
2: Yeah. They, <laughs> so, they make um, Wi-Fi uh, access points and lots of other kind of enterprise Wi-Fi gear, but it's all kind of priced at a level that's um,
1: not out of reach for for consumers or, or prosumers um and oh yeah oh, okay. ubiquity wi-fi these are the th- this is really for office level internet right like it's the expensive hmm. gear yeah but you know really nice software
2: um A- apis to configure everything but they don't just make uh enterprise gear they have um well it's still enterprise i suppose but not just wi-fi things they have uh the mphi range and so this is for like office automation mm-hmm. and could, i guess could be used for home automation as well but yeah. it's things like um door open close sensors motion sensors that sort of thing and then some really nice controller software to be able to say you know if uh if motion's detected then go and do this but the nice thing is it's all power over ethernet to power all the devices
1: ah that's cool so yeah Definitely. fancy stuff lots of good gadgets here you could go nuts so,
2: I'm renovating a house currently, and I would love to put some ubiquity gear uh, in, improve my Wi-Fi performance.
0: I think you've just uh, blown Richard Campbell's budget for the rest of the month. Nice. He's probably ordering it right now, as a
1: matter of fact. <laughs> well, and one thing I've learned is you don't have to buy the product. You just have to remember to put the cable in. So, just yeah. run more wire. And then when you, when you do decide you want the product, you just have to open up the wall, and there's the wire. Yeah.
0: So, is, uh, jumping back in, is there a magic number of tenants where things change in any way?
2: I'm, I imagine, you know, when you, when you have a handful of tenants, the answers to some of these things are probably pretty obvious. When you have millions of tenants, the answers are probably obvious too. Mm. But most people kind of live somewhere in between. Right. Um, and again, that's something we found doing this survey. Like a lot of customers have a handful, a lot have a lot. And, and then there's like a whole bunch of people in the middle as well.
0: And there, you know, is there, uh, obviously you've got some tools to deal with it, but do you, do you know that there are actual, what am I trying to say, numerical barriers after which things just fundamentally change? No. No. Oh, that's good
1: to know. It can't be that absolute. Yeah from a code base perspective, especially if you start getting the customization, do you want to maintain one code base and have an, if customer A then, or do you actually want to make a separate customer base for each of these customers?
2: Yeah. So, you know, that, what usually happens is like when customer two comes along, we take a copy of the code (laughs) and, and we, or we fork it and, uh, and we start doing custom functionality uh, for each customer. And, you know, and then at some point that becomes really difficult to manage because you've got hundreds of these branches, but it's not necessarily the wrong way to go about it at the very start. You know, when you're just going from one customer to two or two to three, having branches per customer is probably a pretty prudent way to go about it because right. again, we don't want to have to just completely re architect the application. Um, if we're only adding one or two customers a year. So, um, so, so there's, I guess, a few approaches to, to this sort of, how do we give customers custom functionality? So one is we fork the code uh, and we maintain separate branches of the code. Mm -hmm. Um, And with modern source control systems, that's probably not unreasonable. You you know, you can keep making changes on a master branch in Git and still easily reverse integrate them into each of the customer branches. Um, And and that might make a lot of sense too, if they're really big changes you're making per customer. You know, if over time, each of these customer systems are going to hardly resemble each other, then it probably is a pretty smart path to go down. Another way to approach it is with plugins. So you could build, you know, using a managed extensibility framework or uh, uh, some kind of add-in model. You could make it so that you have a core product and then each of the customizations that each of the customers want you would build as a separate DLL and drop it into the app and it would dynamically get picked up and and loaded. Mm -hmm. And so that's a nice way of separating what's the core product from uh, what are each of the customers' uh, custom changes. Of course, the hard part about that is having plugins in the right spots. So, you know, if the customer wants a custom menu item, making sure that you've got some kind of way of plugging into that. Um, And then the last way to do it is through feature toggles. And so, you know, if customer A do this, if customer B do that, works. Um, you could also say if feature A is enabled, you know, if the drop bear recording system is enabled for this customer, then present that menu item and, and present all that functionality to them.
1: Yeah, I I think I'd want to really resist building a customer A feature so much as recognize, hey, there are variations on this feature or this is a new feature that anybody could get access to it, and you end up with just sort of a manifest that says this is the feature set that's available.
2: Yeah. And one of the things that we found so in, in designing Octopus to support this is um, we want to deal with customers, not so much on an individual level, but as collections of them. So, right. So what we do in Octopus is we, we tag them and we can say, okay, well, these are the customers who are early adopters. Mm-hmm. And so when we're deploying, we don't say deploy to customer ABC, we say deploy to the early adopters. Right. Uh, And likewise, we might want to say these are the customers that have the accounting module or the drop bear detection module Mm -hmm. enabled. And so when we deploy, we do some different things during deployment for those customers.
1: Yeah. And and you'd end up, you know, the thing is, as soon as you go to customer specific features, every customer is going to end up with specific features and you are going to end up in hell. Like you just your build process is nightmarish. Sooner or later, you're going to have regression problems where as long as you can do it on a feature by feature basis so that there's a chance for people to fall into that uh, fit a category at least it's it's a little more manageable and feature toggles is
2: is really nice because you could then not have to um, redeploy the app just because a customer wants to enable a feature so imagine especially if you're charging them you know a different amount for these features yeah. they might want to go into some kind of admin panel and say you know what I'm going to pay for drop bear detection uh mm-hmm. I'll, I'll check that box and my billing goes up, but this functionality is kind of automatically on. I don't have to wait for a deployment.
1: Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, you change a manifest and you restart the service and there it is. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like that model more. And in, in some ways we're almost describing what a good SaaS architecture looks like, but multi-tenancy is kind of the precursor to SaaS. Yep. Yeah, that's right. You've got to, you've got to contend with this, but I, you know, it makes me nervous when we're making decisions that mean that as I sign up more customers, my existing customers get punished. hmm You know what I mean? Like, stuff's going to slow down. It's harder to get new features out. Like, you want to be able to keep care of your existing customers and still be able to sign new ones.
2: Yeah, it's those pesky customers, isn't
1: it, though? Like, <laughs> yeah. if you've got
2: salespeople <laughs> talking to those customers, they'll, they'll promise all kinds of functionality that... um it well, has that, to be, and that's and, an
1: interesting rule. I've certainly dealt with with salespeople. I never tell salespeople what's coming out in the next version of a product. We found that yeah. in Strange Loop. Salespeople love to sell stuff that doesn't exist yet because dreams are so much more compelling than reality. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I I had
0: that same problem over and over again. Yep, they just they're just waiting around for you to finish something so that they can go talk about it to customers. Heck, I've had. The customer, you know, I'm building a product for a customer and that customer has customers, right? And so the customer is out giving demos of beta stuff, you know, before it's stable and it's not working and, you know, calling you, putting you in the hot seat. So yeah, I wish there was like a, just a, a standard intelligence test that you could give a customer before you
1: uh, agree, you know. Well, I think you just have to be, sort of this recognition, maybe it's an engineering mistake. With engineers, we want to share all the information. But when, as soon as you get outside of engineering, you've got to be pretty careful who you tell what, especially when it comes to new features, because then they just hang themselves on that new feature. The dream of a new feature, always more compelling than the actual feature. Yep. Right. So, And I really want my salespeople to sell what I have, mm. not what may exist sometime in the future. Yep. Hey, Paul, I kind of think that some people listening to the show just go, hey, if I just do all this stuff in the cloud, I don't have any of these problems.
2: <laughs> the cloud makes this kind of stuff a lot easier. You know, if you think about, if we're choosing between, you know, do we deploy um, a separate copy of the app for each of our customers as they sign up? Right. Um, you know, and, and we're doing that on-premises. You know, at some point it's going to be the customer signs up. Okay. Let's go to Dell and we'll order a new server and we'll, you know, three weeks later, the customer is, is signed up and onboarding. And so there'd be pressure to then architect the app in such a way that adding the customer just involves adding a record to the database mm-hmm. and, and not having to sort of provision any hardware. I think when you go to the cloud, actually the option of trying to scale out and put each customer in their own instance, with their own database, with their own application servers that you can monitor uh, and see which customers are utilizing the most or be able to move them into different regions because, you know, different laws, that sort of thing. Um, That actually becomes a lot more compelling. And so if you're building SaaS applications in the cloud, having a more complicated deployment story in exchange for simpler application architecture, you know, an app that's only aware that it has one tenant and doesn't have to know about lots of tenants. Yes. Um, I think that actually becomes more compelling in the cloud.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I I do like the whole sort of feature toggle approach and the manifest approach that you can customize it. Like there's something we didn't talk about here, but I would think that when you have a couple of big customers like those power companies, they want to style that app So that it looks like it's theirs. They don't want your brand on their app. They want their brand on their app. And you sort of get into this mindset of each implementation of this app is going to render visually differently.
2: And this is where, you know, there are ways to handle that, right? You can have custom CSS files for each customer, that sort of thing. But, you know, they might want different terms that they use to, to, describe customers sure. or describe uh, you know different terms that their domain is familiar with yep and so at i think what you probably find at least initially as you start onboarding customers um it's going to be very hard to predict what those extension points need to be yeah like you can't just magically go and, and create an extension that changes the way the product works without first changing the product to support those areas being extended and so for the first handful of customers, it may actually make sense to just fork the code and see what kinds of changes you end up making for them. And then hopefully at some point to come back and, and maybe turn those kinds of things into extensions or to feature
1: toggles. and so Right. On. in that other approach. I'll tell you this. You just reminded me of this too. I have been a part of a company where we had a handful of really big customers that each wanted to wag the dog. Like they kept trying to drive their own features down. And we always wished that we had no dominant customers. It was just, just mm-hmm. all equally little. And so we had more control of our code base. Then I ended up at another company, nothing but little customers. And we f- were, we were begging for big customers because it was so expensive to support all these little customers. None of which made a lot of money for you. Like it is mm-hmm. the classic grass is greener problem. Mm-hmm.
2: And as engineers we love the generic solution don't we like we yes. love you know why can't all the customers just right. change how they do business yeah. so that we can write the software once in the way that's kind of the easiest or the the kind of most conceptually simple way to right. understand how the software should work we write the software um, you
0: use it you pay us that's it you go home. Yeah. And <laughs> if it wasn't home. for
2: those pesky customers,
1: the <laughs> all this be stuff beautiful. would be fine. You know, <laughs> and I've I've also been through the experience of, of doing a big ERP implementation like SAP. And SAP comes out of the box working a particular way. And, and every company, because they believe they're a unique flower, wants it to be customized to work the way they work. And these projects can last literally years. And SAP always says yes and just adds dollar signs in. Mm. And I and absolutely, two years after we had done all this implementation and spent all this money, there was sort of this realization of our method wasn't actually working well. It wasn't the software's fault, and we should have changed our method. Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 It's certainly at some point just changing the way the business works probably isn't a, you know, I think
1: it's not automatically the end of the
2: world. And as developers, you know, I think developers, especially in enterprises who really add value, are the ones that take the time to understand the business domain in which they work. And when you do that, you can usually spot opportunities to not just simplify the way the software is designed, but to improve the business as a whole. Yeah, It turns out that, you know, maybe we don't have to um, build a whole bunch of uh, screens in the app that are replicating these these forms that we've been filling in. If we get to, to know a little bit more about the business that we're working in, there might be a way that we can kind of solve this whole problem hmm. much more easily.
1: And this used to be the domain of the business analysts, right? There used to be a group of people whose job it was to study the business and to come up with workflows that they would hand an architect who would build software around that. But I feel like most business analysts these days are struggling mightily to understand the potential of technology. And that it's easier to take a talented developer who understands the technical landscape and get them doing analysis to actually take advantage of it. mm mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. This is
2: the struggle, the eternal struggle of, of silos, right? Like, yeah. You used to have dedicated testers and dedicated ops people, and now we do DevOps, and we have people that kind of do a, a blend of roles. You can't really do operations these days without doing a little bit of dev. You can't do dev without understanding a little bit about ops. And you probably shouldn't do dev without understanding a little bit about
1: business analysis. Yeah being able to pick those things up and actually run with them for a while you know maybe you you don't need the drop bear module if we're doing remote data collection so we don't go to anywhere near where that bear could drop on you
0: <laughs> paul how are things going in octopus we haven't talked about it in a while yeah we're doing really well
2: we we grow um we've been growing very quickly for the last three or four years now um things haven't really slowed down um we're Becoming full of really talented developers, which is really exciting. So the uh the ICANN has.net site um that you mentioned at the start of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've I've been on parental leave the last kind of three weeks. Congratulations. Recently. Well
0: congratulations.
2: Thanks. Thanks. Um deployed to production successfully.
0: Ah. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't know about your testing the, infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> the one of the really cool things about um
2: running a software company is you can just say hey, wouldn't it be cool if we poured Octopus to .NET Core? And um, and if we make some kind of thing to help us figure out if we can do that, let's share it with everybody. And then you go away for parental leave for, for three weeks, and you come back and, you know, this whole website has launched. So Wow. Um, certainly a credit to the, the talented uh, people that we have working for us.
1: Well, it's got to be um, yeah exciting for you to sort of see, I we just talked about this, and then I disappear for a while, and things just happen. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I look at my own uh GitHub commit graph, you know the the kind of like green tile that kind of gets uh greener and greener on each day that you write code. Mm-hmm. And last year there was a lot of green, and this year it's it's become whiter and whiter. I'm mm. uh, not doing so much anymore. Mm-hmm. And yet we're still cranking out probably way more functionality than than we used to. So, uh as I said, multi-tenancy is something we've been working on uh for the last 4 or 5 months. Um there's a beta version of that out if if people want to give it a try. Um uh, after that, we're looking at porting to .NET Core, which is really exciting. I, I kind of, yeah. you know, if, if .NET Core had a hat, it would be make .NET great again. Mm, right. Because it's, it, we're taking like the C Sharp language and the .NET framework, you know, they're they're really brilliant pieces of technology, but .NET kind of always had these barnacles attached to it. You know, it was stuck on Windows. Yep. There wasn't a great command line experience. Uh, as a vendor, um, you know when we ship new versions of Octopus, we have to choose between do we go with the latest version of .NET because there are all kinds of features we want to use or security improvements that we want to have. But the flip side to that is we have to force all of our customers to install the latest version of right. .NET or do we target yeah. something that's that's older. With .NET Core, that goes away. We'll just bundle the entire runtime with us and uh, that'll be part of our installer and, and you won't see sure. it.
0: And you can't argue with the performance. Yeah, the perf has gone through the roof, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing to see the the amount of improvements they've made to Kestrel, the the hosting engine. So yeah, yeah we at the moment, about that. Octopus yeah, Octopus doesn't run as a as an IS site anymore. We used to. So it used yeah. to be when you installed Octopus, it would run under IS. And it turns out people do a lot of really weird things with IS. <laughs> you know, we we would get bug reports like, um, you know, the app just isn't working. It doesn't look right. And it turns out that somebody removed all the default MIME types from their oh. IS instance. <laughs> yeah, because so it,
0: they can. That's why they did. Just, hey, I wonder what happens when I remove all these MIME types.
2: <laughs> yeah. So we
0: switched away from relying on
2: IS a while ago. And, and we've been running as a self-hosted Windows service using um, HTTP.sys. But um, Kestrel is looking like a really attractive option from performance, but also just the, the ease of being able to spin it up.
0: Yeah. So, Paul, any last words before we wrap up here? No,
2: that's it from me. If you're doing multi-tenancy, uh, we are still working on this this beta version. So maybe ha- have a think about giving Octopus a try. Let me know if it's working for you. There's a lot of different scenarios, like we just talked about on the show, that uh, I think people are, are going to encounter. Um, and we're always interested in learning more about them.
0: Great. Paul, thanks very much. It sounds amazing, and uh, it was great catching up with you again. Thanks, guys. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.